0: Be responsive and get shit done. Those were the words that hooked me the first time I heard Liz Kane speak on stage at Rainmaker. I was grateful to have her on the show to break down her learnings of hiring more than 380 BDRs in the span of only 24 months. She also went into depth about how to hone in on the right segments in your outbound strategy. Take a listen, then hit me up on Twitter and let me know what you thought.
1: If you really are narrowing in on the group of people that has this clear need and you have a use case... It actually opens the door for you to do that in a much more efficient way.
0: This is Sales Tuners with Jim Brown. The only weekly show where we talk about the attitude, action, and ability that gets sales reps and entrepreneurs to grow their revenue from $1 million to more than $10 million in just two years. All I do is It's time. It's time. It's sales tuners time. I'm Jim Brown, your host, and our weekly inspiration comes from Sonia Friedman, who said you have control over three things, what you think, what you say, and how you behave. To make a change in your life, you must recognize these gifts are the most powerful tools you possess. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Liz Kane, a partner at OpenView Ventures, where she leads the expansion team, helping portfolio companies acquire and retain the right customers. Prior to OpenView, Liz was AVP of Worldwide Business Development at NetSuite, where she launched the business development team and successfully hired 382 BDRs over a span of 24 months. Buckle up, you're going to get a ton out of this one. All right, Make sure you stick around until the end where I'll give my recap and top takeaways. You can also check out all the links and show notes at salestuners.com slash 88. But now let's get to the conversation where Liz talks about what it's like to get to work every day with people who think they're going to change the world.
1: I get to see that the software that's disrupting manual processes, old and inefficient ways of doing things across like literally every facet of every industry. And I think I and really getting to help and work with these creative and ambitious founders who are changing the world. So I wake up every day excited to go dig in with them and help them build their businesses. It's amazing because I get exposure to so many different companies. Um, obviously, we only have the opportunity to invest in just a few. Um, our portfolio is about 30 companies at any given time, but we're meeting like thousands of founders. And that is just so cool.
0: I want to talk about OpenView in just a minute here, but I want to stay personal. Uh, I've heard in college you were both a librarian and a bartender. Now, I get those (laughs) individually, but what on earth led you to do both?
1: Yeah. Okay. So the real answer is I needed to make money, but I was the school librarian. I did it for three years uh, at Middlebury College and, you know, like four or five days a week sat in the library, restacked books, did the Dewey Decimal System, and then. At night I worked as a bartender and over the summers I worked as both a waitress and a bartender and in an ice cream store actually I had a bunch of uh, a bunch of kind of service oriented and service industry jobs that were a blast. It's funny I think like that that bartender role and just kind of chatting with people and kind of getting people engaged was something that I love doing. like I still look back on that as one of my favorite jobs.
0: I'm sure it is. One of the things that I've told my wife many times is I want my son to grow up and be a bartender. Because as you said, it's that social aspect of being able to have conversations and try to truly engage with everyone that just makes for a great beginning to a career. So I love that.
1: Absolutely. And I I think it actually transitioned really well when I was interviewing for my first job and like talking about I kind of I took a customer service role right out of college and as they were talking about like how to interact with customers and how, like how to keep people calm on the phone and how to solve a problem a lot of it like you could actually pull from which is amazing that across these two very different jobs and you know different industries that the kind of personal qualities that make you good at it were the same
0: Liz, I want to talk about... you know In this show, we talk about the attitudes, actions, and abilities that have led to your success. So let's start with OpenView. I know today you're not in a direct selling role, but what is OpenView and, and what does a typical uh, workweek look like for you?
1: So OpenView is a venture capital firm. We're based in Boston and we invest in B2B enterprise software at the expansion stage. And I think expansion stage is sort of a term you know we've coined to mean you found product market fit and are really starting to scale. So how that plays out is we're generally working with companies that are in sort of like the A, B stage. But the key is that they have a product, they have customers, they found some repeatability in their go-to-market motion, and now it's, hey, go grow this thing. That's OpenView in a nutshell. And I think one of the really cool things about OpenView is because we have this really niche, narrow focus in our investment strategy, and we're only investing in like B2B SaaS, We've been able to build a team that can go in and help those companies. So it's a team of operators, people that come from other software companies who've been through and seen great scale, some ex-consultants who've worked across tons of different software companies. And we each have areas of expertise where we can go dig in and lend an extra hand and actually just provide capacity to those companies and the external perspective and advice of a third party who has seen a lot of different companies at this stage. That's kind of one of the unique pieces of OpenView. And that's actually what I came here to do was lead that go to market function, which encompasses everything from packaging and pricing strategy to market segmentation work to win loss reviews to setting up your first BDR team to dealing with churn analysis and optimizing your lead funnel What we'll kind of work on any type of project that arises. So my typical week, um, Mondays are for our investment committee, and we literally work through our entire funnel. So from the companies that we're trying to meet with, to our top prospects, people were are engaged and want to spend more time with, to companies at term sheet, to every single company in our portfolio, understanding you know, what are our goals for these companies, how can we have impact, and making sure that our entire partnership is aligned around where we're going to be spending our time. I think that's pretty cool because we get, you know, eight partners in a room and are focused on how do we do this as a team, not how do I go work on one company. I think that's pretty unique. And I'd say that Monday meeting tends to flow into the rest of the week and actually prioritizes where I spend my time.
0: Well, I'm grateful that you uh, took the time uh, out to talk with me on the phone here. But uh, did I hear correctly, Liz, that you say that investment committee meeting on Mondays, you look at your entire portfolio, not just the new deals you're considering, but your entire portfolio? Yeah, every,
1: port- every portfolio company every week. Um, and the goal is to actually talk about the results from last week and what we're trying to kind of help on in the coming week.
0: I do appreciate that team-based approach. I've, I've raised venture capital myself. And I've also studied this space quite a bit, uh, lot, have lots of friends at different companies. But uh, th- th- I think that's a little bit unique in what you're saying is because typically that investment committee meeting that I see, you know, and it is Monday, the partner meeting, but they're really just reviewing the new deals that are in the pipeline, whether or not they're going to push them through, whether or not they're going to write the check and things like that. So I love your guys' approach. That's definitely uh, unique, at least from what I've seen. Now, you obviously haven't been this person that you are today forever. So take me way back. How did you even uh, get started in a sales uh, capacity or in a sales environment?
1: Totally accidentally. So I was working for this really small startup called Open Air um, based in Boston. We did project management software and we got acquired by NetSuite. And at the time I was in a like customer technical support role. And I remember one day we came in and they sat us down and said we are outsourcing the team to the Philippines. Uh, it's like kind of the model that already works for NetSuite. We're adopting it for this now subsidiary company. And what are you gonna do next? And it was funny. The timing aligned really well. The, um, I guess, then COO of NetSuite, now the president, um, it was Jim McGeever. And he was visiting our Boston office. And he gave me this just great piece of advice. And he said, if you ever want to sit in the C-suite, or if you want to move into a leadership role at some point in the future, you've got to go figure out where the revenue comes from. And that really resonated with me. For whatever reason, I knew that I wanted to go into sales in some capacity. And this opportunity presented itself to join the sales operations group. And I worked directly for um, Jeff Honeycomb, who was one of the heads of sales there, and sat with him in the Boston office and spent a couple of years kind of doing whatever he needed in sales operations. And so I got exposure to a really broad array of people and activities from running the deal desk and you know like processing the orders at the end of the month to territory planning to QBRs to running the weekly forecast call and probably did that for I don't, yeah a couple years and eventually like saw this opportunity to move into sales management and I was really lucky uh, Jeff and uh, Brian Martin actually who I, I was working for in the next role gave me an opportunity to go manage a sales team and I never sold before and I had never managed before. These guys like gave me a $50 million quota and said, go for it. And it was a blast. So I think I sort of fell into the role, but pretty immediately found that, you know, I had been to the company for a while, I understood the ins and outs of sales and our product and our customers, and I uh, was able to step in really quickly and kind of build up this team.
0: I think you've gotten some great advice in your life. I love this one. Go figure out where the revenue comes from and be a part of that. Yeah, you had you had another manager tell you that uh, you know in order to to succeed there, you need to be responsible and get shit done. Now on the on the surface that seems pretty straightforward, but break that down for me. What 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 did that mean? Be responsible, get shit done.
1: Yeah, so it was be responsive and get shit done, and we joked about that a lot because the responsive piece when you're working at a big company that's growing really fast and everybody has like hundreds of things on their plates, shifting priorities constantly, you're answering to a lot of different people, like things just fall through the cracks. And I think one of the one of the things I found was be the first person to respond, say you're on it, like take ownership, volunteer, however you want to think about it, like say yes to new opportunities. And then... Follow through on that was the second piece. And we always joked that you could be responsive and you can mask not actually getting things done for quite a while. But what you really wanted to be was accountable. And you wanted to be the person that when somebody said, okay, you've got it, they didn't have to think about it again. They didn't have to ask for status updates. They didn't need to like check in and make sure you were really doing what you said you were going to do. And that's where like the getting shit done piece came into play. Um, I think at Nutsuite in particular, I took on a lot of tasks and a lot of things that maybe other people didn't want to do or that were just sort of like outside my normal job scope. Um, You know, things like moving our office, working with a real estate agent to find the next space. Like it wasn't really in my job as a sales manager, but we knew we needed to do it. And they were thrilled to have me take that on. So those are the kind of things that I think of when I say like be responsive and get shit done. It's it's kind of picking up and helping things move along that otherwise would fall through the cracks.
0: That notion of saying yes to more things is something that I tell a lot of uh, people that I work with now. When you're young in your career, you just need to say yes to a whole bunch of stuff. And everything. honestly not yeah, everything. <laughs> literally everything. And, and and it's not even just your career, right? It's in life. When you're young yeah. in your life, just say yes. Right. You never know where any of those experiences are going to take you. Now, as you start to get more into your career, you're going to start prioritizing things and you're going to have to start saying no to a lot more stuff. But when you're early in everything, you got to say yes to, as you said, everything.
1: Yeah. I mean, that exposure is what what's going to make you great in the future. Like, how do you know what you're interested in or what you're going to want to do or even what you're good at? Like most people early in their careers fall into a job. It's not because they sought it out or knew they'd be great at it. And I think that evolves over time and you figure out like what you're passionate about, what gets you excited and motivated every day. And that's not always a linear career path. And so the way you figure out what comes next is by just getting exposure. So I'm with you on saying yes.
0: Yeah, So true. Liz, I'm grateful that you and I got the chance to connect at the Rainmaker Conference down in Atlanta. Uh, one of the very first things in your presentation, and here's the funny thing about presentations, you get to read the, the title and you get to read a, a very tiny description. You never know uh, which presentation is going to be good and, and, and worth your time sitting through. Yours was fantastic. And one of the sure. first things that you did to catch my attention was you said, hey, I'm gonna let you guys in on a little secret. Everyone sucks at outbound now uh, be, because of uh, you know your your time at openview you 've got to see a lot of different companies yeah. and, and their attempts to go to market. but with so many companies uh, that are dependent upon the model of outbound, why do so many struggle with it
1: I'll rattle off i think a couple of top reasons that i've that i've seen repeated over and over again, but I think there's like a a much longer conversation here that we'll delve into. So I think the number one thing that stands out to me is just a complete lack of prioritization. So both of like building the team and how many resources go into it. And then secondly, of who to go after once you have those people. And so I spend a lot of my time now uh, with our portfolio figuring out what those top segments are. When I say a segment, I'm talking about a group of people that can be addressed with the same go-to-market strategy and the same product. And that definition, I think, really helps people hone in on like, what can I actually give to a sales rep? And it may, it may define your territories a little bit differently. It may be by geography or industry or company size, or maybe by some totally different characteristic. It doesn't really matter. But if you can get really narrow in a segment and you have repeatability in your message and you're pitching the same product, it becomes a lot easier. But instead, I think what most companies do is they hire a couple people to be BDRs, or they hire a couple of sales reps and say, like, go source your own leads. And you just like point them at the world. (laughs) You don't narrow in with them. You don't help them understand who to go after. And that lack of prioritization just leads to like this floundering dilution of resources and just like a very inefficient use of time. Um, You just spend a lot of cycles trying to figure out where to spend the time instead of doing that first. So that's, I think, the biggest one I see.
0: I love that. When when I think about the first sales job I had in my career, and ultimately the company became very successful, but but me personally, I did flounder. I did do a lot of things you're talking about. They the entire world was my oyster, if you will. Right, I could go after any company in any vertical in any state, and and I when you have that much opportunity in front of you, you kind of get crippled to think well, what do I do next? Because I can't call on everybody. And so one of the fascinating things that they did for us was literally just give us state territories. And just by doing that alone, I said, oh, okay, I've got nine states. Well, let me go figure out in those nine states who the best companies are, et cetera, et cetera. cetera. And, And just that alone made me start to focus in on things. Now, uh, uh, it ultimately grew organically to the point where I said, okay, now I think that I'm seeing a theme here. These are the biggest types of industries in those nine states collectively. So I'm going to go after that. Yes. And it just so happened that, you know, I I chose e-commerce. It was just a thing that I was, no, but, but had I not just been given that territory, I would not have had any of the success I've had in my career. I truly believe that. So it's, it's amazing to me that hearing you say that uh, so many companies still struggle with that. but why do you think that is? Why do you, why won't they? I mean,
1: yeah, so I think you just touched on something really interesting, which is like the best reps are always going to figure this out for themselves. And so you're going to watch like your top 10% of reps, regardless of what you tell them to do, go like hone in on a really clear segment they can get. But it's like the other 80% or 90% of people that that really won't be able to. And and often I don't know, I think it comes from different reasons, you know, probably the most common is like the leadership doesn't know either you know, they, they've they got this expansive market that they've pitched to their VCs and investors and they haven't figured out like how to get focused yet. Um, I think the second is just time. Like, you know, do I have time to feed up what those, to really do the analysis, to figure out what the right segment is, to figure out what the top group of customers is, how to break those down by territory? Or do I just assume like somebody else is going to do that? And I think that kind of buck gets passed around a lot. I think those are kind of the two most common things I see. And then I guess the third might just be um, this expectation that like a lot of things are coming inbound and we don't need to do it. So uh, I see that a lot too, where I've got some good flow kind of coming through the website, coming through marketing channels. And even when you have that, uh, you should still be prioritizing and thinking about what those top segments are and how to go repeat that, not just take what's coming in.
0: What I found really interesting in what you said there is that sometimes leadership doesn't even know how to do it. And we sometimes forget that, right? Like we all are people. We all are trying to figure things out. And so we don't have to know everything. And when we don't, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be focusing on something, but give people a break sometimes that you know maybe we don't know what that is. But let me ask you this, Liz, how do you uh, validate the right segments to go after, at least when you're working with the companies, your portfolio companies?
1: So I think the first thing we do is we start with the data. And we try to dig in and look at a couple of key metrics. So we're looking at, you know, Who is coming inbound? Let's start with that. What can we learn from what people are searching and how they're finding you? We're looking at the cost of acquiring those leads. We're looking at the length of time it takes in a sales cycle. You know, are there certain segments that the deals close in half the time or your win rate is double? Um, Then we're looking at the back end of that, too. Uh, You know, what is the net growth of those uh, customers over time? What's the churn rate? What's the you know length of time they're a customer and how they use your product? So there's a lot of different indicators and pieces of data you can look at over time. But I think if you start with a couple of those key metrics and start whatever you have, right? You don't need to do all of those things. Start with what you've got and try to hone in and identify a few that could be the top. And the way I tend to start with that is start with a set of hypotheses. So go around to your leaders, to your sales reps, to your marketing team, to your customer success, and ask them, like, who are our best customers? And you're going to see that a couple of themes emerge. Then you get to go validate that using both data and then some qualitative work too. like get on the phone with prospective customers with lost prospects with your existing customers, and like have the conversation to understand if the use case you think you're solving is really the pain point they have. And that'll help you actually continue to narrow in. And I think, you know, think about that as sort of like a funnel, right? You're going to get a series of 10 hypotheses. You're going to narrow it down with data to your top five, and you're going to go out and validate and pick the top two or three. And it doesn't mean the other segments are not valid for the future or that you wouldn't opportunistically take something that comes into you, but it allows you to focus your outbound effort and proactive use of resources.
0: Let's say we do that, right? We take yeah. your advice and, and we start doing it. How do we know when we we've reached the success? Because let me say this different way. Some of the things that I've seen companies do is when they see that they see a couple of things of success start to happen, they kind of like pivot right into it, and yeah. now that's all they do. Uh, or worse, the opposite is they go two weeks into something and they don't really get the right amount of data, so they say, "Well, that's a failed uh, vertical. We're just going to completely get rid of that one." So how do you how do you go through the two differentiations?
1: experimentation is a whole other, I think, topic here. I, um, I don't think people have set up generally, generally speaking, I think companies do a pretty bad job of setting up environments in which like experimentation is encouraged. And it does become this like pivoting concept. And you don't define like what metrics you're going to track or the length of time you're going to run these experiments before you start. And I do think that's really important, like putting some discipline around that. Um, so I guess like, Big picture with testing the segments. I think you're you will see impact, and probably it's not in less than like 90 days on a lot of these. Like you need to be looking at: did your win rate change? Did the size of your deals go up? Did um, you know quota performance for your individual reps working in that territory change? There are a lot of things you can look at that are good indicators that it's working, but it takes time. So I think um, to address what you're saying, I think when you start one of these, any of these experiments you point a couple of people at it. It's not one person, one person doesn't make an experiment, that's really hard to prove whether it's the individual or whether like there's something repeatable there. But I think if you have a couple people working on it, and you set a timeline and you say, we're going to dedicate the next 90 days to going really deep in this uh, vertical, and what we expect to see is an impact on one of or multiple of, you know, three metrics, you then have a baseline to go back and have a discussion about it after the fact. You have measurements in place and you can be like rigorous about reviewing that data. Um, but if you don't lay that out from the beginning and it's just sort of this ad hoc, we're going to go try it. Yeah, you're right. You don't know if it's working relative to anything else.
0: You started to go down that path of you, know, you can't put one person on it because then at that point, you don't know whether or not it's the person who is doing it. And that's the reason why it's being successful or failing or not. So you got to have at least two. One of the other things that stood out to me, you, you talked about, you know, pitching too early in, yeah. in, the, in the buyer's journey. But uh, you said that when you're de- when you're doing outbound, you're dealing with suspects, not leads. And I and I don't know why that that wasn't like obvious to me before, but it just resonated. And you said that you must generate interest first. Talk more about that.
1: It's a missed opportunity in a lot of sales cycles, especially right now with how much technology we have put around like the outbound selling process. <laughs> and our ability to reach a lot of people very quickly with like high volume email, we have like lost some of the personal aspect and are going for like quantity over quality. So what I mean by that is I can throw out a thousand emails if I get, you know, 10 people to respond and really engage in a phone call, like I'm calling that success. And I see that a lot Um, rather than thinking about like, okay, I have this top segment, who are the most likely buyers within that? How do I make them aware that either there is a problem I can solve or there's an opportunity for me to improve something in their business and create that awareness and bring them around to the idea that there even is a way to solve that problem or create that opportunity. And then I can generate interest in my product. But the idea that you can walk in and say, you need software XYZ before they're even aware that there's a problem that they have. It's just crazy to me. Um, you might get lucky. You're going to get a couple of hits. You're going to reach out to somebody who, you know, has that immediate need. Was in a meeting this week where somebody put it on a whiteboard and said, "This is your problem," but it's rare. And if instead you're thinking of this as this nurturing activity, which maybe traditionally is more the job of marketing, and I think a lot of people um, do think that. But if you if you put your you know your sellers in that position too, of uh, this is like kind of a long play, and I'm going to help you get your top prospects to become aware of the problem so that you can pitch. It's a much more fluid and easy conversation. Like they're, they're willing to engage with you because of it, rather than you just talking features and functionality and shoving that down their throat.
0: So I love that you said that it's a long play. You're typically today working with series A, series B a companies that, that, that yeah. are established, They have they have figured out the product market fit when you When you think about the startups though, how do you balance that notion for a long play with? I have to get revenue in the door today, so if I can actually get someone to take my call, I'm pitching like I, how do you how do you balance that Liz?
1: I think there's a few things you can do. one uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't take the call or shouldn't pitch. I'm just saying that you need to have established that they like want to hear your pitch before you make that. So should you still be calling? Absolutely. I'm actually like a huge fan of the phone. I think we've become over-reliant on email. Amen. (laughs) Yeah, uh, like way too much. Um, But then, you know, it's making sure that that person actually wants to hear from you in that moment. So there probably are a few emails that happen. Some awareness getting created, some thought leadership, some content that you've provided that you can point to when you call so that it isn't an out-of-the-blue, like, true cold call. Like, we can create a warmer environment for that to happen. And the second thing is I think that targeting and segmentation kind of comes back to answer this question as well, which is if you really are narrowing in on the group of people that has this clear need and you have a use case, it actually opens the door for you to do that in a much more efficient way. So rather than going out to 1,000 people, you're going out to 200 and you hope that the conversion rate on those is actually higher. So I think you move away from volume and you focus on just the companies that are most likely to engage with you and where you have the most compelling story.
0: With a lot of the clients that I work with, you know, we, I get them on the phones. We're doing a lot of outbound calling, trying to get away from that notion of uh, mass emails, as, as you've talked about. But when we do get them on the phone, right? So because this notion of first, you have to get them interested. A lot of people immediately want to see the product, but we have to know... like. By profile, we think that you fit the target audience. We want to ask you a few questions. Is there any uh, advice you can give on this notion of just show me the product versus let me do a little bit of discovery with you?
1: It's actually really funny. I was on a call yesterday. Um, I'm I'm doing some research into like a new initiative for like internally for OpenView, and I got on the phone with a salesperson. And like I know how this goes. Like I know he is the BDR. He is going to talk to me, and then he's going to pass me off to somebody else. So we get on. And he said, "Okay, at a high level, let me just tell you about our software. And I said, let's just skip that. Like, you're going to give me a 15-minute pitch that I don't really care about. And I want you to just ask me the 10 questions that means I get to talk to your expert sooner. And he started laughing. But I think, like, if you frame it in that way, which is, like, I can waste your time for 30 minutes right now. But in reality, I'm going to give you a better answer. And I'm going to get you to the right person who can actually help you if you just answer these four questions for me. Like We can all save time. I actually think that resonates with most people right now. And if you can do it in a way that's I'm helping you, not just me, I think people buy it.
0: I always keep a notepad next to me when I'm doing these conversations. And that is a note that I have highlighted twice. So <laughs> uh, I can waste your time or I can actually ask you a few questions and get you the right answer. Can your you choice.
1: 20 minutes back in your day on this phone call and instead like, get you on one that really matters in two days. I'll take that every time.
0: That's fantastic, Liz. And it, it it's funny that you, as the, I guess, prospect, if you will, the buyer, you're the one that shut it down, as opposed to them trying to force them be like, no, 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 let's not play that game. Well, Ask yeah. me the questions. I mean, I'm also I, uh, like
1: looking at his LinkedIn and I'm like, you've been at this company for two months, you don't have a background in this, so I know what's gonna happen right now. Like, I'm gonna get fed a marketing pitch that you're reading off of like some paper someone put in front of you. Like, this is not gonna help. <laughs>
0: Let's lean into that a little bit. You talked, you know, you're looking at his LinkedIn. He's definitely uh, young in his career. Liz, one of the conversations we've had offline was, you know, I, I asked about the hardest thing that you've had to overcome in your career, and you mentioned at, at one point being really young. Yeah. You even leaned into the notion of being a woman and then being in tech and having to to find your voice. Talk to me more about that because I, I just find what you're talking about fascinating.
1: My first manager job, I was 22, and I was managing a team of eight sales reps six to eight over time it grew. But the reality was like, I had no instant credibility either with the team that I was managing or with my peers. Um, You know, I was working on a leadership team at a tech company where, you know, my peers were at a minimum 10 to 15 years older than me. And then like literally all men. And, you know, the first offsite we did, the first QBR I went to, I remember sitting in the room and just having this moment of like, like how do I get them to listen to me? And when is it appropriate to to be the one talking, to be the one pushing back, to push my own agenda versus kind of listening. And it took some time to find my voice in that. Um, And I think a huge factor of that was being a woman. And I think the second was being really young, sort of a double whammy. Um, But I was really lucky. I worked for some amazing people who gave me the opportunity to do that, first of all. And second, like the space to figure it out. And I think, you know, I, I was able to, quote unquote, find my voice earlier in my career. But each time I took a new job or worked with a new group of people, you kind of had to go through that again. You know, I, I built up credibility in one job and changing. You had to, you had to go start from scratch because um, I still have that same skepticism. It's not stigma, but y- you are younger. You have less experience. So like, why am I going to listen to you in this moment? you have to come back from that and make sure that you're actually adding value and kind of speaking up at the right times.
0: The reason why I find that so fascinating is because, um, and, and you know, even as we talked to offline, I, I did the same thing, like, I don't know how best to say this, so I'm just going to say it, But right? But as a man, I don't have to deal with this on a regular basis, especially not the fact that I have to overcome it every single time I get into a new situation where that is the, the thing, like not being in the, or I guess being in the majority kind of gives me that privilege to start from the basis of, oh, they know what they're talking about. So what advice do you have uh, to uh, the the many uh, women that listen to this show about how they can find their voice as early or as fast as possible?
1: Yeah, so I think two things come to mind for me. One is like finding a mentor or ally. So who are the people that uh, you can bounce ideas off of, who you can rely on to give you real feedback, who will be your advocate in that moment? Um, sometimes they're in the room, sometimes they're not. But like finding those people who can really like help you build confidence, I think, is key. And actually, even broader than that, they may or may not be working in your company. Uh, I think I, I've had great mentors who I both worked for and with, and then separately, completely external to my job, but who I think helped me grow personally. And then the second is actually just kind of fake it till you make it. (laughs) And that sounds like probably kind of terrible, but like speaking up and acting confident because it is, you have something to say and don't sit back and let somebody else say it. I found so often early on that I would be thinking something and not sure if it was like a valid thing to say. Whereas like my male counterparts would toss it out there, whether or not it was important or added value to the conversation I no one cared. You just move past it if it's not. So like sometimes you're gonna make mistakes. That's okay. Like be vocal.
0: I truly appreciate hearing you say that. It reminds me, you know, I I'm a sales coach. I work with a lot of different tech companies in this space, and um, part of my job that's not really part of my job. What I mean by that is like I don't get paid for it. I don't want to do it, but it just comes with the territory. Is having to do a little bit of recruiting and 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 place people at companies and. Recently, one of my clients wanted to hire a new VP of sales. And I felt like I had the perfect person for them. Happened to be happened to be a woman. And when I reached out to her for this role, she'd never been a VP of sales before. I I pitched the notion to her and she was interested at first and then she just shut me down. And I was like, well, hold up. What why? And she's like, I'm not ready for that job. I'm not ready. I don't know all the answers. I don't have all the stuff. And I was like, stop. First of all, I'm. I'm. I have the belief in you. I have the confidence in you. And let me tell you that all of us are what you said, Liz, faking it until we make it. So take the role because most men will do that. They, mm-hmm. They'll just take it and they'll learn on the job. But she was very uh, steadfast in. No, I need to know that I'm ready to go succeed in that role. So it's just interesting that that concept. And I appreciate you being willing to share that on the show.
1: Yeah, I'm happy to. I think it's it's something I talk about a lot, um, both with people that used to work for me at NetSuite and my network more broadly. Um, I think that there need to be more women that are like stepping up and taking those roles and being willing, to your point, to learn on the job.
0: Liz, I want to take a quick break so that I can say thank you to my sponsors. But when we come back, it's going to be time for the money round. So you don't go away. And sales tutors, you don't go away there. We'll be right back. Costello is pioneering the way companies build and execute sales playbooks. The platform helps sales reps prepare for calls, ask timely questions, tell relevant stories, and sync insights back to their CRM, all while showing managers and reps the gaps in every single deal, so they can work them together to move them forward. With Costello, sales leaders can identify what's working on the front line and replicate success across their entire team. Learn more and see a demo at andcostello.com. That's A-N-D-C-O-S-T-E-L-L-O.com. We're back. And it's time for the money round. Liz, are you ready for the money round? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. What's the one thing that has contributed most to your transformation from normal to exceptional?
1: I think it's what we were talking about before of just saying yes, like actually taking the opportunities as they come.
0: If you were to start over today in sales, what would you tell yourself to spend the next 30 days doing?
1: Talking to every single customer that you already have so you can figure out what a good customer looks like
0: two-part question for you here. Which phrase describes you best and why? I love to win or I hate to lose.
1: I hate to lose. Um, It's actually funny you asked this question. This is one of the questions I always asked when I'm interviewing a sales candidate. And I think people who hate to lose, like they strive and want to learn from every loss. They don't like dwell on the wins or get excited by the high. They know that there's another loss coming.
0: What's a book that you've read multiple times or always find yourself recommending to others?
1: The book, Why? Hiring uh, A Players. It's an awesome book on like how to interview. And it's something that I like, send to uh, like everybody who asks me about hiring practices.
0: Sales tuners, if you'd like to check out Liz's suggestion of why for free, head on over to slash book. And there you can sign up for a free 30-day trial of Audible and browse their over 150,000 titles. Again, that's the book, Why? Liz, what is currently at the top of your bucket list?
1: All right. So 2018, I've got a new hobby. Um, I decided going into the year that I wanted to learn how to do something new. So I'm learning how to bake bread and I am doing one bread a week. And uh, the entire office is benefiting from, from that new hobby.
0: What's the biggest piece of advice you have for all the sales tuners out there grinding today?
1: To keep the customer at the center of what you're doing. In the sales roles that I've been in, I think it's very easy to get hung up in like the metrics and the goals and these like external factors that are placed on you. But if you put your customer at the center and you think about what you're doing to improve uh, their daily working lives, you can keep your motivation through that and you can kind of keep going through that grind.
0: Liz is active on both LinkedIn and Twitter and said her email is right on the OpenView website if you'd like to connect. Let's get to my top takeaways. Number one, be responsive and get shit done. When you're working at a company that's really going somewhere, everyone has a hundred things on their plate and constantly shifting priorities. If you want to stand out, be the person that volunteers for new projects and make sure you follow through. Once you say you've got it, don't be the person that someone else has to follow up with or check in on. This exposure is what will make your future great. Number two, hone in on your top segments. The simplest definition of a segment is a group of people who can be reached with the same go-to-market strategy combined with the same product. This will not only help define territories by way of geography, industry, or company size, but really it will help create repeatability in your messaging, making your product easier to sell at a lower cost per acquisition. This focus doesn't mean you can't go after other segments later. It just keeps you on target with your limited resources. Number three, generate interest first. When you're doing outbound sales, realize you're connecting with suspects, not leads. This should start to change your thinking a bit on how you talk to them. Starting with the right market segment, your first job is to find out whether or not they even have a problem you can solve or if there's any opportunity to improve something in their business. Then, and only then, are you able to generate interest and deliver your pitch. That's it. Those are my takeaways, but I'd love to hear yours. Please tweet at me at SalesTuners or shoot me an email, jim at salestuners.com. I reply to every message that I get. All right. I hope to see you next week. Until then, I'm Jim Brown. Let's make it rain. Thank you for listening to Sales Tuners. Stay up to date at www.salestuners.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. And they stay there. And they stay there.